This morning we are continuing on in our study in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that I appreciate about Luke's Gospel, uh, and really about uh, all the Gospels, is that they are entirely focused upon Jesus. And as I read and studied Luke's Gospel this past week, the, the Father kept redirecting my attention to Jesus, His power, His love, and His mercy. And I pray that He will do the same for us this morning as we endeavor to sit and learn at the feet of Jesus. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. If you are using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Luke chapter 10 on page 868. And while you're turning there, let's remember what Luke's Gospel is all about. Um, Luke's Gospel, it's the central point is to communicate that the Bible's promise of salvation from the very beginning has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Just three chapters into the Bible, the first man, Adam, sinned against God. And Adam's sin brought the world and all mankind under God's judgment and wrath and curse. But, in God's loving kindness, He promised Adam and Eve that sin and death would not reign forever. God promised that one day He would save sinners like you and me by sending a son, His son, to crush Satan and defeat sin and death. And what we'll learn today is that we are beginning to see the fulfillment of that promise through the life and ministry of Jesus. Last week, in our study of Luke's Gospel, we came to kind of a pivotal moment in the narrative. Uh, the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel mainly cover Jesus' ministry uh, in and around Galilee. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus said he got on the road to Jerusalem. This road is the road that would lead to his death. Jesus has revealed that he's going to Jerusalem to die for the salvation of sinners. And it was on this road that Jesus called his disciples to follow him. In Luke 10, we remain on this road. And here Jesus commissions 72 of his disciples to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom. He rejoices in Satan's defeat and the Father's wisdom. And Jesus teaches us that disciples' lives are to be marked by love and listening. That's what happens in Luke chapter 10. And everything in this chapter revolves around Jesus, and rightly so. The disciples proclaim the nearness of the kingdom because the king has arrived. Jesus rejoices in Satan's defeat and the Father's wisdom because this reveals that he has the authority to save sinners. And Jesus teaches us that citizens of the kingdom are marked by love because they understand that Jesus first loved us. Luke 10, it calls forth from us three responses, which are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon this morning. We are to, one, receive the message about Jesus. Two, rejoice in what has been accomplished by Jesus. And three, recognize our need for Jesus. And I'll repeat each of those points as we move into each new section of the sermon, like we're doing right now. So first... We want to receive the message about Jesus. This is what we see in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. So let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 16, where we need to learn that we need to receive the message about Jesus. Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into, this, into his harvest. 
Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. You see, in these first 16 verses of chapter 10, we see the Lord Jesus commissioned 72 of his disciples to go ahead of him and proclaim the arrival and nearness of the kingdom of God. And in this commission, Jesus gives them instructions for their journeys and labors, including offering the blessings of the kingdom and warning against the rejection, rejecting the offer of the kingdom. And all of this, as you see there in verse 16, is centered upon Jesus and our need to receive the message about him. So let's take a look, a closer look at these verses now. You'll notice there in verse 1 that Luke, he orients us to this commission of the 72 by calling to mind what took place after Jesus gave his disciples instruction on the rejection and resolution that this road of following Jesus requires. We thought about that last week. The themes of rejection and resolution, they continue into these 16 verses. And Luke deftly begins to call to mind Old Testament imagery. The 72, remind us of what we read earlier in the service, the 70 and the two elders who served alongside Moses in Numbers 11. And there, there are a few things from that passage that uh, shed light on, on this passage for us. Uh, first, you'll remember that Moses originally, he called 70 men to help him instruct the people of Israel in what it meant to love the Lord and serve the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord rested upon them, but the Lord then later added two other men, Spirit-filled men, to their number. And interestingly enough, as we, we read in that chapter, in Numbers eleven twenty one nine, 9, Moses said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Moses, you see, he desired for all of God's people to be marked by the Spirit of God. And we know that that is what has unfolded in the New Covenant era, in the era under the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, He commissions these 72, undoubtedly, it's linked to Numbers 11, and here's the implication that Jesus is bringing God's ancient purposes for the kingdom of Israel to their goal. That's what these 72 go out and proclaim. They go out and they proclaim the nearness of the kingdom of God. But before they go, Luke is careful to mention that they will go everywhere. 
Jesus means for his kingdom to be offered to everyone. Jesus also instructs them to pray before they go. They're not to pray casually, but earnestly. To pray earnestly, to pray with deep desire and longing for the prayer to be answered. I wonder, is that how we pray? Do we pray with desire and longing for the Lord to answer our requests? Notice what Jesus told them to pray for and why. You see there in verse 2, Jesus told them that the harvest was plentiful, that there were many people who needed to hear the news of the kingdom and come to the king. But the laborers are few. And that is why he told them to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into the harvest. Is this something we pray for? Is this kind of on our prayer list, things to offer to the Lord? Are we burdened by the unbalanced reality of too many lost people and too few laborers? If you are burdened by that unbalanced reality, then pray and go, or at least consider going. Did you notice that right after Jesus tells those around him to pray, he then tells them to go. It's almost as if he is saying, you know, you're the laborers we've been praying for, so go ahead and go out into the harvest. Christian, what about you? Have you been praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest? Have you, have you ever thought about going out into the fields to work for Jesus? Let me encourage you to keep praying and thinking about going. Talk to the elders. Talk to uh, wise counselors, godly brothers and sisters in Christ about whether or not you ought to take more proactive steps to be sent as a laborer into the harvest. Now, we've seen Jesus' instructions in verses 3 to 7 before. They turned up actually in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Here they are kind of represented with uh, just a few minor adjustments. The 72 are basically told to carry out their mission in the same manner and might uh, that they, the, ch- the 12 were charged with to carry out their mission. We could kind of spend time working through the similarities that are found in chapter 9 and chapter 10, but I want to just focus in on the differences for our time this morning. There are, are several things in these verses that are new to us in Luke's Gospel. One is that Jesus tells his disciples that he's sending them out as lambs amongst wolves. That obviously alerts the 72 that they're to be wise. It also reminds us that kingdom work is inherently one of conflict. Jesus is going to explain this further in verses 17 to 24. But what we must keep in mind is that Jesus has come to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness will not do so without a fight. In in overthrowing the kingdom of darkness, Jesus is endeavoring to save sinners from the power of the evil one. Another new element of this mission, as compared with chapter 9, is the enhanced and developed theme of rejection and its consequences. They're particularly underscored here. While Jesus alerted the 12 in chapter 9 to the possibility of rejection, Jesus here tells the 72 the consequences of such rejection will bring fiery judgment. Uh, And notice how the judgment is cast. It will be a judgment that is worse than the judgment that Sodom Sodom and Gomorrah, the book of Genesis, faced. Sodom was a city which was inhospitable to the holiness of God. Those cities who reject Jesus' 
messengers reveal themselves to be inhospitable to the Holy One of God. In verses 13 to 15, Jesus even calls down woes upon Jewish cities who we presume will or have rejected Him. Jesus performed miracles in these cities and they rejected Him. The ministry of the 72 would likely confirm this rejection. And Jesus is telling His hearers that their rejection of Him would result in astoundingly bad consequences. Their punishment is compared to the punishment coming to Tyre and Sidon. Those were two Gentile cities who in the Old Testament prophetic literature received some of the worst punishments promised. But these Jewish cities, notice these Jewish cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum were in for sobering judgment, judgment worse than that of Tyre and Sidon. Bethsaida, by the way, I believe was home to three of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Peter, and Philip. This probably would have surprised them. And Capernaum was something of a home base for Jesus and his Galilean ministry. Jesus here teaches us that we ought not to presume upon God's grace. These were Jewish cities, cities that Jesus ministered in and around. Simply because you are near to God's people, because you live among them, worship among them, does not remove the responsibility or the obligation to personally respond to God, to Jesus, in faith. In fact, being near to God, near to His promises, near to His offer of grace, brings precisely that responsibility in something of an elevated manner, it seems. Now, Jesus, He's not throwing kind of a verbal temple temper tantrum here because He's not been received by His own. Jesus is certainly warning of coming judgment, but what is equally certain is that He's doing so with great pity. These were cities who saw the mighty works of Jesus. They should have known that the miracles that He performed revealed His identity as Savior and King. But they did not believe. They have not responded with joy at His coming. They have not repented in response to the preachers that He sent to them. They have not received Him. They have rejected Him. And as we see in verse 16, what it means to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. Once again, being near to the King and His kingdom, bring with that privilege the responsibility to respond to Jesus and to receive Him in faith. Rejecting Jesus' messengers is tantamount to rejecting Jesus. So there are only two choices when it comes to Jesus. We can either receive Him or we can reject Him. There is no middle ground. In receiving Him, we receive His kingdom and its blessing. We receive peace with God. You see that in verse 5. In rejecting Jesus, we stand under the threat of condemnation and the eschatological judgment of God. So what will you do? Will you receive Him? Or will you reject Him? How do you receive Jesus and escape the judgment that is to come? Will you receive Jesus by turning from your sins and placing your faith in Him? You receive Jesus by believing that He has done for you all that is needed for you to be received into the kingdom. You receive Jesus by rejoicing in what has been accomplished by Jesus. And this is what we turn to think about next. So let's turn and consider our second point. Rejoice in what has been accomplished by Jesus. This is a response that we should make to what we read here. 
Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 24. Uh, read verse, start reading in verse 17 there. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Well, in these verses, the 72, they, they return and report on their mission. And Jesus, he responds to their report. He prays to the Father. He teaches the disciples where their true joy is to be found. Here, we are seeing that Luke 10 is following along a line similar to Luke chapter 9. Just as the 12 returned and reported to Jesus after their mission, so do the 72. And Luke is careful to note that they returned and reported with joy. They are excited about what they were able to do. But Jesus seems to be excited about what this reveals. Notice how the disciples say that the demons are subject to us. Hey, hey Jesus, these demons, they were subject to us. And then they kind of tack on in your name. At one level, it's true, but it's only true because of Jesus' power and presence. It's only true because Jesus has invested his authority in them. Let's remember this about whatever spiritual victories we have when we feel we have accomplished something. They occur by the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. All glory and power belongs to Him. If we're to understand what Jesus says in verses 18 and 19, we must absolutely keep in mind the central storyline of the Bible. The central storyline of the Bible is about how God will send a deliverer to defeat the devil, depravity, and death. And here, Jesus, he uses language from Isaiah chapter 14 concerning the downfall of the prideful kingdom, king of Babylon, to describe what the arrival of the kingdom of God has done to Satan. It has cast him down from his throne. The proclamation of the kingdom of God and the arrival of the king is what brings about Satan's defeat. And this is what was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There, in the face of Adam and Eve's sin, God made a gracious promise. Speaking to the serpent, Satan, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, did you notice that Jesus told his disciples that he has given them authority to what? To tread 
on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. See, God's ancient promises are coming true. In the disciples' subjection of the demons, what we are seeing is a a prolepsis, a, a future reality that's being brought forward in time so that we can see what is coming and what will come. We are seeing here, described uh, is the promise by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where he tells the church in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How is this possible? Might I suggest that it's possible because the principle that Jesus directs the disciples to there in verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus directs his disciples' attention away from what they have done to something that has been done for them. Did you notice that? Read verse 20 and see how Jesus directs the disciples' attention away from what they've done to what has been done for them. Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice, Jesus says, not in your victory, but in my victory, the victory that I will soon accomplish at the end of this road that secures you a home in heaven. See, it's through union with the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in Him, in His triumph over Satan and the devil, that we too have victory over the evil one. We rejoice in what Jesus has accomplished. You can rejoice now because it is as certain as something that has already been completed. Because in Jesus Christ, it has been completed. He has been raised from the dead in victory over death and the devil and our sin. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if you understand what Jesus is telling his disciples here. He is telling his disciples that he has come to defeat Satan, to cast him down. He has come to overthrow death itself and that we can have our names written in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. See, like the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, we all need to understand that the wrath of God is coming. We need to flee that wrath by receiving Jesus and rejoicing in his power, his power, to overthrow the devil and death and depravity. We flee the wrath to come by abandoning life in the first son, in Adam, and placing our trust in God's favored and faithful son, Jesus Christ, whom the Bible calls the second Adam. He is calling sinners like you and me to turn away from our rebellion against God, to turn away from living for ourselves and to turn to faith in Him. He is calling us to turn away from trying to rejoice in our own good works before God and to rejoice in Jesus' good work on our behalf. Jesus calls each one of us to turn from our sin, to place our faith believing in Him, that He lived the righteous, sinless life that we have not. The life of perfect, righteous, and faithful obedience to God. He lived all the way from His birth to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died bearing the sins and the punishment for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. Yes, on the cross, Satan bruised the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He inflicted him with a wound. But in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he crushed the head of the serpent. Three days after his death, he conquered sin and death and the devil. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus has destroyed the power of the devil. So Jesus commands us to believe in him. That there is salvation for all 
who believe. And I want to urge you now to give up your life to Him through repentance and faith. I want to urge you to rejoice in Him and His work on behalf of sinners like you and me. And when you place your faith in Jesus, you too become a child of God and are assured by the Holy Spirit that your name is written in heaven. And if you want to think more about what it means to become a follower, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and to rejoice in His work on your behalf, I'd love to, to talk with you after the service. I'll be at the door after, afterward. There's, there's nothing more important that you can think about than this good news in Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes now to verse 21. Interesting section here, isn't it? Jesus expresses joy in the Holy Spirit. And it is a joy which leads him to offer a prayer of thanksgiving in verses 21 to 22. We must remember that this prayer comes on the heels of Jesus' pitiful woes over the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They heard Jesus' teaching, but they did not understand. They saw Jesus' mighty works, but they did not really see. Their hearts were dull, their ears were heavy, and their eyes were blind, to use the language of Isaiah. Then right there in the presence of the 72, Jesus openly prays to thank God the Father for concealing the nature of Jesus' person and work from wise and prideful men. And yet at the same time, Jesus thanks God the Father for revealing the nature of His person and work to little children. Jesus seems to be referring to the, the 72 as little children. Those who have humbly taken God at His word, believed, obeyed, and trusting fully in the purposes and the promises of God. We should be clear that Jesus is, is not describing kind of the, the heart's kind of two natural dispositions of the heart. Two groups of people as though some are naturally haughty, prideful men, and some who are naturally humble, children. The truth is, is that we're all naturally proud, and we all need to be humbled. More particularly, with what Jesus has in mind here, if anyone is to see the saving power of Jesus Christ, God must reveal it to them. The, the revelation of the saving power of Jesus Christ is in the Father's hand, which He also entrusts to the hands of Jesus. This is the way in which the Father is pleased to save sinners. Salvation is all of His gracious will, as Jesus says right there in verse 21. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. Now, lest you think that God is unfair in revealing the saving power of Jesus Christ to some and not others, let us remember that He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 21. This is His universe. And He can do and will do as He pleases. Furthermore, God is not being unfair. He is being gracious in revealing the saving power of Jesus Christ. Do you want to meet the justice of God due to your sin? Or do you want to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ? If you are offended by the idea that God's, sovereign, God's sovereignty and salvation is gracious and good, then I would encourage you to consider the fact that Jesus views God's sovereignty and salvation as gracious. As people who proclaim and claim to be followers of Jesus, we must see God's dealing in this world from His perspective and agree with Him. Jesus even takes the matter a step further. 
he not only takes a positive perspective on God's sovereignty and salvation, but in verse 22, he also makes clear that he works in indivisible concert with God the Father to that end. The Father reveals the Son in bringing sinners to faith, and the Son reveals the Father to those sinners, thus bringing them into relationship with the Father. Through the Father and the Son's gracious revealing, outcasts and orphans become adopted children of God. Those who know what they deserve, those who know that they deserve the justice of God, cannot help but be moved by the grace of God and the salvation of sinners. What is more, the disciples are encouraged to recognize the blessed position they occupy in redemptive history. That's what verses 23 and 24 are about. Jesus is calling them to rejoice in the position that they are in in redemptive history. We all live at a particular moment in redemptive history. And Jesus is telling his disciples, the 72, that they are living at a particularly special point in human history. They are living at the point in human history where all of God's promises in the Old Testament are coming true. They have the privilege of seeing God's promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, Jeremiah coming true. All of God's promises concerning his Savior are coming true because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his inauguration of the new covenant. Jesus calls them to recognize that they are blessed. Jesus tells them, prophets of old wanted to see this day. Kings who reigned on the throne of Israel wanted to see this day that you are seeing right now. Rejoice. Recognize that you are blessed to see God's promises coming true. Brothers and sisters, we too are blessed. We live in a privileged place in redemptive history. We live on the side of history in which the revelation of God's saving Son has taken place. We have written testimony of it in God's Word. We have written historic testimony of Jesus' defeat over the devil and death. We are blessed because the Holy Spirit has been pleased to reveal this truth to us and give us hearts of faith. In this, Jesus is teaching His disciples and us that our true joy ought to be found in Him and the salvation that He has accomplished on our behalf. Still, recognizing our blessed position in the course of redemptive history does not remove from us the responsibility to continually, day in and day out, recognize our need for Jesus. This becomes evident in the next two scenes in Luke 10. A religious lawyer has the privilege of knowing God's law, but that very privilege should have revealed his need for a Savior. And then two sisters have the Savior come into their home. One recognized her need for Jesus and she sat down at his feet. And the other was very graciously shown her need by Jesus. This is what we think about in our third and final point. Where we need to recognize our need for Jesus. And I would encourage us that to think that we need to recognize our need for Jesus each and every day. Uh, let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, just to start. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, 
What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In these verses, Jesus is confronted by the first of many tests and traps on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus and a religious lawyer discuss the heart of God's law, which is love, and then go through and, and then through a parable, Jesus makes it plain to the lawyer that he does not in fact love God or his neighbor. This lawyer, as I hinted at, he's not a secular lawyer, he's a religious lawyer. He was likely a teacher of the law of Moses. Now, does seeking to trap Jesus sound like the lawyer really wanted to love his neighbor? No. And I would hazard to guess that Jesus knows this. So Jesus, he wisely turned the tables on the lawyer and forced the lawyer to answer his own questions. What is the law? How do you read it? Luke told us that the lawyer wanted to justify himself there in verse 29. And with that comment, Luke clues us into what's really going on in this conversation. This lawyer wasn't interested in humbly recognizing that he could not save himself. Remember, he asked Jesus in verse 25, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? An inheritance does not come by way of what we do. Rather, an inheritance is a gift given to us. It comes because of what someone else has done for us. The thought never entered his mind, this lawyer's mind, that he needed someone to love God and love his neighbor as he had failed to do. He thought that he was self-sufficient. He thought that his love was enough not to inherit eternal life, but to earn eternal life. That is why Jesus told the parable about what loving your neighbor really looks like in verses 30 to 36. Jesus' parable is also pretty realistic. This kind of thing actually happened on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. People were often beaten and robbed on that road. And, and this is really the kind of thing that happens in our world too, doesn't it? 
Instinctively, we know this is wrong and unloving. Because man bears the image of God when our fellow man is attacked, God, by extension, is attacked. What is occurring here is a failure to love our neighbor and to love God. Indeed, the reason that we fail to love our neighbor is because we have failed to love God with everything that we have and are. This is where our need for Jesus should be abundantly clear to us. Take a look at how Jesus concluded the parable. Jesus said to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Jesus, he was not telling the man how he might go and earn eternal life. We cannot earn salvation through good works. So what was Jesus telling the man? I think Jesus was telling this man in something kind of, kind of a backhanded way. You don't love God or your neighbor. Jesus was telling that religious lawyer, your love for, your, for God and your neighbor is not in your heart. How do we know that? Well, the lawyer certainly didn't love Jesus, did he? He was God in the flesh standing right there before him. He didn't love Jesus. He wanted to trap Jesus. He wanted to test Jesus. That's not what love looks like in action. This man was wise in his own eyes. It's mentioned there in verse 21. We also know that this man did not love God and his neighbor because in the parable, Jesus didn't make the religious he, uh, figures the hero. This man was a religious figure in the community. Now, he made the hated Samaritan the hero. And when Jesus asked him which one proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That's because he didn't love his Samaritan neighbors. He didn't love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't love his neighbor, and he certainly didn't love him as much as he loved himself. Now, friends, before we judge this man, let's humbly admit that not a single one of us here has perfectly loved God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Not a single one of us here has loved our neighbor as much as we have loved ourselves. The only way that we can receive eternal life is by recognizing that Jesus was the only one who ever perfectly loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus loved his neighbor more than life itself. We see the supreme display of Jesus' love for God and his neighbor at the end of this road when he goes to the cross. The Bible tells us that out of the fullness of his love for his people, Jesus went and laid down his life for sinners like you and me. We can't earn eternal life through our love of neighbor. Only Jesus can give us eternal life. Only he perfectly loved God and neighbor. Only Jesus can give us eternal life because he is the only one who conquered death to secure it. We need to turn away from seeking to justify ourselves and recognize our need for Jesus to justify us before the throne of God. And I do want to stress that we are indeed to call our neighbor, to, to love our neighbor. Part of this parable does teach us that we ought to love our neighbor. But hear me clearly, we can only really love our neighbor because we have first been loved by Jesus Christ. If we spurn and reject Jesus' love displayed in his death and resurrection, then God will never be pleased with all of the good deeds that we do. It is in response to Jesus' love that we properly love our neighbor. And that love, that love, it will cost us something when we do seek to love our neighbor. 
Jesus showed us that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the, the Good Samaritan gave up his resources, his time, his money. You see, actually loving our neighbor burdens us and costs us something. There is some sacrifice. Jesus taught us in this parable, the Good Samaritan, but ultimately he taught us that in his death. He gave up his right to a fair trial, his right to due process, his right to the protection of his person, and ultimately his right to life. So that the wounds that you and I have been inflicted with on the road of life might be healed. May we love God with all that we have and all that we are. And may we love our neighbors as ourselves because we see and believe that Jesus first loved us. We need to recognize that about Jesus. Now the next scene in Luke's Gospel is a much softer scene, but it is no less a scene that communicates that we need to recognize our need for Jesus. Read Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him, welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell, tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. See, in these verses, Luke reminds us yet again that Jesus is continuing in his journey. He's continuing on the way to Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus, he is welcomed into the house of these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And there's a contrast set up between these two sisters. One is working her tail off and the other set her, sat her tail down to listen to Jesus. One welcomed guests through serving and one welcomes Jesus by listening to his teaching. Now, swirling in the back of our minds ought to be God the Father's words in Luke chapter 9, verse 35, when he said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Let's also remember that in verse 16 of this chapter, Jesus, he underscored the importance of hearing. Which sister is obeying the Father and hearing Jesus? Well, Mary is. And interestingly enough, Mary is presented as doing the exact thing that a faithful male disciple of Jesus would do. She is sitting at the rabbi's feet. Now this is countercultural for a whole host of reasons. Normally, rabbis didn't have female disciples. This was unheard of in the first century. But Jesus, he is a different rabbi. And one of the things that Luke is always interested in doing is presenting female followers of Jesus as examples to us in the faith. Mary is an example in the faith to us. She is sitting and listening at Jesus' feet. It was God's gracious will to reveal to Mary that she ought to give her ears to Jesus' teaching. We have a lot to learn from Mary. We too ought to give our ears to Jesus' teaching. We too ought to give our ears to the word of God. We have a lot to learn from Martha too. Uh, she was diligent. She was a diligent servant, wasn't she? She was busy with much serving, as verse 40 says. Now, 
serving is not wrong. We, can, we might get that impression by what we're seeing here, but I don't think we should. Serving itself is not wrong. In fact, at one point, Jesus even told his disciples that serving is part of what it means to follow him. By all accounts, Martha was busy with what would ordinarily be the duties of a woman in the first century. She was being kind and gracious and hospitable. She was doing all that she could do. But Jesus, you see, he's popular. And he always has a large crowd with him. Martha was short-handed. And that's why she asked Jesus to instruct Mary to get busy. And look at how Martha is characterized in this passage. She is distracted, verse 40. She is anxious and troubled, verse 41. Just, just pause right there. Um, do you ever feel that your life is distracted? You feel anxious, troubled? We can learn from Martha. We can identify with her. And in verse 42, Jesus tells Martha that she is not engaged in doing the one thing that is necessary. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying that one thing is necessary. Everything else can take a back seat. All those other things, by implication, are not necessary. It doesn't mean they're unimportant. As though hospitality is not important. It is important, but it is not most important. Only one thing is most important. Only one thing is necessary. Everything else can be put off. Everything else can be delayed. Martha, that delicious meal that you are preparing, it can wait. You need to do this one thing. What is that one thing? It is sitting and learning at Jesus' feet. Why is that one thing necessary? Well, because sitting and learning at Jesus' feet reveals that we recognize we need Jesus, that we need to be saved by him. And I don't think that it's too much to suggest that we would be wise to extend this principle to our every day and our Sunday. Every day, what is the one thing necessary? I think it is probably learning at Jesus' feet, opening our Bibles, hearing from him, and rejoicing that he has given himself for us, and he's given himself to us. The dishes can be put off a little while longer. The lawn can be put off a little while longer. The email can be put off a little while longer. The highlights from last night's game can be put off a little while longer. The news can be put off a little while longer. And what about our Sundays? What is the one thing that is necessary? Is it not the same? One of the things I love about you as a congregation is your willingness and eagerness to serve. And I praise God for that. And you teach me so much uh, about the Lord Jesus and about sacrificial service and generous service. And I want to say to you, keep going. And I also want to say to you, let's sit at Jesus' feet. Let's give him our full attention. Uh, let's not let our, our minds drift to the next things that are going to happen in our day. In all this, let's recognize that we don't want to be distracted from the good portion that Jesus mentions there in verse 42. We actively have to choose the good portion. And Jesus is himself the good portion. I wonder if you see this as the difference between Mary and Martha. Jesus is really the only portion that should be chosen when he's present. One has said, Mary has said in her heart, in the words of Psalm 16, 5, the Lord is my portion and my cup. 
And don't you love how Jesus is implicitly inviting Martha to make him her portion too? Mary sees her need for Jesus with the greatest clarity. And in this conversation with Jesus, I think we can expect that Martha is beginning to see her need for him too. And as we conclude, I want us to recognize that we're not talking about merely earthly blessings here. Mary has chosen a portion which cannot be taken away. Note well those words, cannot be taken away. And this language of portion is the language of inheritance. No wonder Luke put this story next to the story of the lawyer asking what he could do to inherit eternal life. Get this. Jesus is assuring us that one woman has an eternal internal inheritance. And he is offering that same inheritance to another. In the first century, lines of inheritance run through the sun. So don't you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying if you want to have an eternal inheritance, you've got to choose this son as your portion. You've got to choose this son as your portion. You've got to recognize your need for Jesus. If you want to have an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away, you've got to see your need for Jesus. Receive the message about him and rejoice in what he has accomplished for you. Let's pray together.